We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning and Happy New Year. So we are at a beginning and an ending. That's what my intention is today. We've been looking in the book of Obadiah for over quite a span of time. And what I have on my note here is this is session 10 in Obadiah. And we think, well, how could we talk from this 21 verses 10 times at 30 plus minutes each time? But it has been a blessing to me to, to involve myself and engage in trying to understand better what is here in Obadiah than what I had ever done before, paying more attention to it than ever I had before. And I hope that and trust that many of you have gained a benefit as well from us spending time here. So with this, one of the things that I want to do is spend a little more time towards the last part of the book because we didn't spend as much time there. And so I'll say some things more about that. But I want us to just to remind ourselves that from the beginning, when the book opens, it says in the second line in my text, thus says the Lord God. Now we have mentioned and said over and over that the prophecy was given centuries ago, many of them. And so it's, it's an old text. It's an old prophecy. It was given to a people who were on the earth, but they had been so long gone that who, who knows even the name of any of the people who were the original heroes of this word. But we have it. Why do we have it? Why do we have it? You know the answer to that. That's God's doing. We have it because God ordained that we should have it. And so he caused the message to come and to be given through Obadiah. But one of the things, though, that seems quite miraculous, at least to me it does, is the preservation. We have the word of God given all these many centuries ago. And the preservation of that word, that's God's doing. And so why do we have it? We can understand that from the context of the original audience, Israel or Judah in some specific focus, that they have been through a very difficult time, horrifying time. And some of the information related to that time is given to us in the first part of the book. And so we can understand when we look at some of the things here that 
God has a word for the people of Judah. And we understand them to have been the primary original audience. So what about us? And I think that's always a relevant question for us. And to answer that, I'm going to refer to Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, in verse 4, it says this. But whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. He also essentially was removed from the text. But he says, for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, that's a very interesting thing. Now, if you started in the context of Paul and his ministry, then it gets much more rich in terms of what this all means. But it's not beyond reasonable. In fact, it is very reasonable for us to understand, for us to include us who are here present today. And those will who will be present in future days all the way until the upward call that we call the, the, uh, the rapture. And so this word here, we can be confident that it's God's word, that he intended for the original audience to gain something, but that he also intended that we, should also gain something from study and consideration of what we have here. Now, about that original, primary original audience, those were not just any group of people. We've made this point over and over again. They were not just any group of people, but they were a people specifically identified in this book in verse 13, by two words from God. And those two words are my people. So that that original audience are a special people whom God called my people. We talked in the early part, and we started with Abrahamic covenant from Genesis chapter 12. But God made certain promises. He made certain promises to Israel. He promised to them a land. When Abraham was first called, God said, well, I'm calling you out to go to a land. And, I, and Abraham's duty was to get packed and head on out, not knowing where he was going. But he didn't need to know where. All he needed to know was who the one was who was sending him and who would guide him. That's all he needed to know. It's important. See, sometimes we, we want to know more than we need to know. And sometimes we want God to give us answers to things that we don't need to know the answer to. But that's just the way human nature goes. But what God has wanted us to know, he has told us. So now in this I'm going to go now to the latter part of the, of the verses here. And 
start now at verse number 15. Verse number 15 of Obadiah says this. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Now we talked about some of the literary features of this book, especially poetic features, and we see some of that here. I'm going to say something about the day of the Lord, but notice here where he says, as you have done. And then the next uh, major section, your reprisal shall, be, shall return upon your own head. As you have done, it shall be done to you. That gives a fuller expression by putting both of those phrases together that way. It really emphasizes that concept that as that person or that nation had done, it was going to be done back to them the same way. Watch out about the judgment that you meet because you'll be meted with the same judgment, uh, that idea. So the day of the Lord. But now notice the words, the next four words. The day of the Lord upon Edom, is that what it says? That's not what it says. Now look at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And so we had all this. A lot of verses talking about Edom because Edom has been exceptionally wicked. But when we get to verse uh, 15 here, uh, it says, all the nations. That's very important for us to take note of. We've emphasized how that the prophecy was calling out Edom. And it gave us a lot of detail about what they had done and how horrifyingly horrible <laughs> that was. Yeah. But uh, now he says all nations. So one of the things that this is, is saying to us is, is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all the nations and all the people in all the nations. He is a sovereign God. We, we get that. And so that no nation can escape him he knows what they're all up to. But then, as with the nations, no individual can escape him either. Because he also knows what each individual is up to. <clears throat> and so he says here then that all the nations, there's going to come a judgment for all the nations. Now, the next phrase here is an interesting phrase. And I was trying to understand the referent here. Because the next one says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall come upon 
you. And then, um, and so the evil, the evil doers. One of the things I thought about when I was looking at this is, when we think about the evil doers, and there are, well, many of our contemporaries are engaged in a lot of evil doing. Historically, through the Bible, we see uh, Habakkuk. You know, what is he? What was his question? What, he, what was he concerned about? He, sometimes it seems like the wicked get away, and they can do the evil things, and they're not going to be called to account for those. But that's not the way God's economy works. We may not see it or understand it or know how or when. But I was thinking about something that came to my mind. There's a phrase we use sometimes that's called poetic justice. Now, poetic justice is the idea that an outcome now, it has both sides. An outcome of a vice or a virtue is punished or rewarded in a manner that is peculiarly or ironically appropriate. And that's really quite interesting. So, brother, yesterday in our meeting, that illustration I gave from my trip to, to Mississippi for that project, that would fit in that idea of poetic justice. Now, I guess that's really not fair. You, you folks weren't there. You didn't know what we talked about. <laughs> but, but the idea of poetic justice seems to fit in that. But I'm going to give you a real brief comment about what, I, what happened with that thing, what we were talking about. We were talking about some of the events that happened in the South. And we talked about one Emmett Till and what had happened with him and the horrifying way that that boy had been murdered. And then I talked about a trip that I had to take uh, as a part of a project when I was at the University of Michigan as a graduate student, where I had to go down into the area where that murder had occurred. And this, this young man I had to go with, who showed me around the different places I had to go, and he told me that there was a man who lived in town who had participated in that horrendous murder and that over many years, that man didn't have his, his faculties had gone away. He was, you know, he would be yelling and screaming and running in the street at night, no clothing on, just wow, all that. And it seems as if that could have been what illustration of what we think about when we say poetic justice in that sense. It's almost like participated, not brought to human justice in the human justice system, but still suffering and punished <laughs> temporarily. Now, we're not talking about what eternal punishments will be because we do know this, that no matter what happens temporarily, whether people are brought to account here and now, God still has the record. And he still is going to meet out justice. And so we can learn to not be too, not to lose ourselves 
because we see certain things go on that didn't get a proper answer. Edom was going to get a proper answer from God, what God's answer was for them. All the nations were going to get the answer that God had for them. So far as you drink on my holy mountain, and that was a phrase I meant to emphasize when I talked about the second part of verse 15. For as you drink on my holy mountain, that's the you that I intended to bring a question to. Who is that referring to? You drank on my holy mountain. Let me just read the whole section, verse 16. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. So I was doing some reading and looking at different uh, commentators about this and trying to see how, how to understand what, what this is telling us. And so here's where I landed. It seemed that the two major, well, one author said three major approaches to it, but I'm thinking just I'm going to focus on two ideas, is that we could consider the audience for that particular, I mean the, uh, the referent for that particular you to be Edom, or we could think of that referent as being Judah. As you drink on my holy mountain. Now, look at the second part again. What's going to happen with the nations when they drink on that mountain? It says, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. So they are going to endure and unendurable, <laughs> harsh punishment right on the mountain, right? And so it's going to be for them a, a thing that can't be reversed. They will drink the dregs in the future. Now, we know that Judah had drank the dregs on that mountain. That's why they were in such a distress, because in the early verses, it talked about what Edom did to Judah in their time of trouble, and how they laughed and they mocked and then they participated, even to the point of capturing the people trying to escape and all that. They did all that, and that was Edom, um, Judah, drinking the dregs. But a major difference is that, for one, For Judah, it was a temporary situation. It was temporary. But as for Edom, and as for the nations, as it says here, it's not going to be a temporary situation for them. It's an ultimate situation. And so they have what is going to be their... Uh, their future situation then, and they shall drink, and they shall be as though they had never been. And so we see prophetic revelation that relates to these things and how what God says is, 
are, are going to be the results and the outcome of these things. So, we can understand that as Galatians says in chapter 6 and verse 7, that God is not mocked. Whatever a man does, or whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. Or, as we, if you read any ET occasionally, you read, God will not be made a fool. We say God is not mocked and say, oh, what does that mean? Well, God would not be made a fool. <laughs> so people in these nations, they did what they did. But in the doing of those things, God is still supreme. And though they seemed to triumph for a while, it wasn't going to last. It wasn't going to last. So the day of the Lord. We have used the phrase an eschatological day as the ultimate day of the Lord in a technical sense. And we talk about two phases. If I think that's an appropriate phrase to use. We, and we, we got some of those in the men's meeting too. Uh, yesterday we were talking about some of these things. But there is a great tribulation that's coming. It's future. And that will be a, for a span of seven years. That's the understanding, the theological understanding that we have, and that's the, way, the base we teach from here. We understand that there are others who don't take the view that we have. But that's, this is the way we understand the scriptures. And we understand it and believe it to be more accurately this way than the way some other people do. And after that great tribulation, well, before that great tribulation is that what we, I use the word rapture or the uplift or the upcall. So that those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that time, they're going to be taken up out. But they're going to be the great tribulation, period. And there will be a lot of things that go on during that period. But at the end of that period, there will be this millennial reign and so the Christ himself will be upon the earth, ruling. And you talk about righteousness, ruling on the earth, it's going to be. So we believe that to be literally as it's going to be. We talked about some of what might be some of the details of how that might work out. Well, obviously, the whole lot of that we don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about it, but we don't need to know it, so we don't need to stick in higher positions as to what how specifically it's going to work out, but those, those years. So we have these two basic periods. Now, when it talks about all these nations, all these nations, so that ultimately these nations are going to get their ultimate judgment in that setting of that, that tribulation. Uh, they're going to get their ultimate judgment. And then the millennial will come. And so I see in this last section of the book here. So in the first section of the book, you know, we, we had things, some of those things were, were contemporary things that were going to happen and all that. But here we have some things that will stretch forward to the future and will be completely fulfilled then. So now I want us to drop down and look at verse number 17. 
Well, I'm sorry. Before I go there, let me just bring in verse. Uh, I looked at 15 and 16. Now, in Mount, Mount Zion, in verse 17, it talks about our Mount Zion. Let me skip that part for the moment and go to verse 18 where it says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And so the Lord is saying, Israel, Judah, my people, they're going to triumph, and they're going to overrule, and they're going to displace Edom. Edom is going to be annihilated, basically. So then, in verse 17, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. So if we understand that to be the millennial kingdom, what possessions are they possessing? God detailed what the land mass was that he was given to them. And they will have it all. And so when it says here about deliverance or deliverance, there are a couple of different uh, thoughts there. Because we can say, who, who are these deliverers or what is this judgment? There will be people who will be judging in the millennium, but not judge, bringing judgment like what the judgments are on the nations, but people who are ruling, people who are in charge of things. And that sort of thing, that's what I understand this to be talking about in that, in that section. And so he says, my holy mountain, on my holy mountain, that's, that's a reference to, to Jerusalem. In verse 16, you drink on my holy mountain. In verse 17, on, my, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. And then verse 19, it talks about, well, 18 and 19, and actually going beyond that. But we see details here. And so it's detailing to us and to those people that there are specific lands. So the original audience would understand this, that there are specific lands that are a part of the covenant promise of God who are occupied by other nations. Other nations are ruling there. But it's not going to continue that way. It's going to be gotten away, taken away from them and given to, uh, to Jacob, to Israel. And that's what it says. Let me just read through this section here. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. I read that part. And then uh, verse 19. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. And the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. And as far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. So listing out all these places makes it realistic to them to understand the, the, the depth and the, and the breadth of what it is that's being said here. 
that they are going to indeed get the land. And then saviors shall come to Mount Zion. And, and that's, uh, I use the word deliverers, but the saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And I think I spoke a little bit ahead because I, these saviors, these are the people who will be, you know, we talked about how that during the millennial reign, the believer in Christ will reign with him. And we'll have certain duties and responsibilities in that millennial reign. And I think this is what is being depicted here. It's telling us that it's going to be, just as the Lord said it would be. The Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And then that last phrase there, what a marvelous word that is. Because it says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So that everything culminates in him. So that we, as we understand this theology, and we talked about the millennial reign being a time when, when Christ is actually reigning on the earth. But we have to understand that while there is righteous rule, because Christ himself will be ruling, he'll be ruling over humanity that has not yet been perfected. And so what does that mean? So we talked about how that those who enter into the millennium, they will all be what we call saved people or born-again people or really true Christian people, those people, all those people who go in. It's like there's a qualification, and every single one who gets into that millennial kingdom will meet that qualification. But they're still humans. And they're still Adam's seed. And they still are born with what Adam's seed was born with. And what does that mean? See, even though Satan had been bound, <laughs> right? Satan, now see, this is one of the interesting things. I was reading, I was reading uh, in a book that was published 300 years from the year that I was born. <laughs> and it's, it's very interesting. Uh, and related to some of these things. But uh, these things are, God says, sin is a problem. Not some other things, but sin. And sin came about through the one man, Adam, and it passed through all men. So that even those ones who are born into that millennium, after Satan is bound, sin also is their lot, which means that they're capable of sin too. And so at the end of that millennial, when Satan is unloosed for a bit, there will be the final rebellion. 
and then the millennial kingdom will merge into the eternity. Th those are wonderful, fascinating, fascinating thoughts. But I think one of the things that uh, we keep coming back to is, is that although we have here it's just a few verses, 21, out of however many there are in the book, in the Bible itself. And started with certain specific details that started so many centuries ago. And then ending talking about things that are so far future, way future, because it speaks about the merging of the millennial kingdom into eternal, into the eternal state. And so while the number of verses are small, the significance of what's here can't be overestimated. And it's for our learning, for our comfort. Judah needed to comfort because they were in a bad place and they had been mishandled and they could be wondering, I thought we were God's people. Now what's going on here? And we can think about it this way. For them to think on that thought will be like they have forgotten a part of what God said. Because God says, I set before you the good and the evil, the right and the wrong, and then I'm giving you some opportunity to choose they made their choices, and as a consequence, certain judgments were brought on them, which looked harsh and unbearable. But it was because of the choices they had made. In the millennial kingdom, people born from there, they will be making certain choices. But as uh, Thomas Brooks, that's the author that I'll start referring to, It says uh, from one of his comments, and he was talking about how we partition or partition or understand what part of our sin is due to ourselves and what part is due to Satan. We know that Satan is an active adversary and that he's always putting things in front of us and say, hey, look at this, shining and glimmering and looking like gold, and he's whispering. But he doesn't have any power to make us do. He's in charge to entice. But as those who are in Christ, he can't make us do anything. So that there's a sin that comes out of our nature. And see, that's the thing, that in the millennial kingdom, period, Satan won't be active like he is now. Why is that? Because he's bound. <laughs> but the sin will still be there. So when we think about our spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare is not with flesh and blood. And we can't fight that battle with flesh and blood successfully. That's why we keep on coming to the scriptures and keep telling ourselves, well, we need to bury ourselves in here and find out and get the help from the Lord because only from him because we, don't, we can't stand against Satan 
we look at some of the things that were done by some of these people here, and we can say, well, we can see the idea of energized by Satan. We can understand that. Motivated by him, encouraged by him. And we see a lot of things in our own world right now. We can say, yeah, the energy of, of Satan. But the people participate with him. I think Brooks would say that without our participation, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. See? If we are right with God and we resist the way that he tells us to, Satan is powerless against us. The Bible says if you resist the devil, he will flee. It doesn't say if you slander him, he will flee. But unfortunately, I've been around folks who seem to think that's what the Lord said. Call Satan all these horrifying names and all that. Slander him. But that's not the pray. God says, no, that's not what you do. Because our strength is in him. It's a spiritual warfare. Slandering the name of Satan to try to get him to back off, that's the flesh. Trying to fight Satan. It's a losing battle every time. Edom and the nations in a battle against Israel, it was a losing battle every time. And God would set everything right. And he would bring every judgment to his end. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We're going to close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have given to us the privilege to consider the words that are in this book. And Lord, we know and understand that there is far more to learn and to know and to understand from these sections of scripture that we have looked at. And for that purpose, we ask you to, with that understanding, we ask you to help us to continue to engage with the word of God and to continue to seek the face of God to help us so that we can do better in understanding and doing the, the things of the Lord than what we have before. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, the one who bore the sin for us, having never sinned of his own, we ask with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Thank you very much. We appreciate your kind and attention, kind attention.